everyone. Before we begin today's episode, I wanted to let you know about this great new podcast I think you should definitely check out. Virginia's Home for Public Media, also known as VPM, has created a six-part podcast series called Resettled that explores the process of refugee resettlement through the voices of those directly experiencing it. It's hosted by Ahmed Badr, a social entrepreneur and former refugee from Iraq, Resettled showcases the milestone moments in a refugee's experience. Each episode explores a specific theme in their journeys upon arrival to the United States, from navigating the healthcare system to graduating from high school. This podcast shares intimate moments of refugees' lives and explore the policies shaping their future. Instead of telling stories of individuals characterized solely by persecution in their home countries, this series tells the stories of fascinating people who are extraordinary beyond their refugee stories. Sounds interesting, right? Listen and subscribe to Resettled wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find it on vpm.org. And now to our today's episode. They said staying home would save lives, but you can't stay home if you don't have one. My name is Zahran Kwame Mamdani, and that was my family's story. In 1972, they were evicted and expelled from their home in Uganda because of the color of their skin. We immigrated to this city when I was seven, and today I work as a foreclosure prevention counselor. I'm here to talk today about the housing crisis across our state. All across Queens, I see the pain my family felt then in the faces of my clients now. Immigrant families forced to choose between their hospital bills and their mortgage, feeding their kids or keeping the lights on. Yet while my clients struggle, luxury developers continue to determine who deserves to live in Astoria. And if you're not getting priced out, you're getting pushed out. The same NYPD that's brutalizing black and brown New Yorkers spied on Muslim communities like mine right here in Astoria. But we're not just facing a housing crisis or a crisis of policing. We're facing a leadership crisis. For years, landlords, lobbyists, and police unions have bought our elections and controlled our politics and our politicians. I'm running for state assembly because it's time to make Albany accountable to Astoria. This is Zohran Kwame Mamdani, an Indian Ugandan New Yorker housing counselor, a democratic socialist, a rapper, and a candidate to represent Astoria in the State Assembly. Zorhan knows firsthand the difficult impacts of displacement. It is his family's lived experience. Zorhan became a housing counselor, hoping to alleviate the potential burdens of the housing crisis for New Yorkers. He advocates on behalf of civilians, which means that oftentimes he has to negotiate with banks who value profit over people. But after seeing people suffer time and again, Zohran couldn't get past the fact that it didn't need to be like this. In his words, it is, and I quote, the consequence of decades of pro-corporate and pro-landlord policies in Albany, unquote. And we talk about this during our interview with Zohran. 
Zohran recognizes that New Yorkers deserve change on the legislative level. So he set out to do just that. Zohran ran his campaign for the state assembly on the grounds of guaranteeing housing to all New Yorkers. Desegregate the schools, fund and fix the MTA and apply critical changes to the criminal justice system, such as eliminating cash bail and banning solitary confinement. Here is Zohran Kwame Mamdani. I'm so excited to have you on Immigrantly and you recently ran to represent NY36 in the state assembly, right? Yes, that's correct. The results are not in yet, but things are looking good for you. Yeah, I mean, we are 589 votes in the lead. Um, there have been close to 8,000 votes that were cast in person. Now we have to count all of the at-home ballots that were sent in, the mail-in ballots. And it looks like, as of this point, about 9,000 have been received. It's likely another one to 2,000 will be received. The, the number of received will be determined tomorrow. So we'll know what the final number is that is to be counted. And then on July 8th, the Board of Elections will begin that count. So are you excited? Is it nerve-wracking to go through the whole process and, you know, just wait for results to come in? Yeah, I'd say it's quite, uh, it is quite nerve-wracking. Um, and I think what it, it's also a little frustrating because it's unnecessary. You know, there doesn't have to be this long of a delay between a June 23rd election and to have the count only begin on July 8th. It kind of speaks to the broken nature of so many of our political institutions, namely the Board of Elections. You know, <laughs> in so much of this country, if not the world, you know, when you when you vote absentee, you are given updates as to the status of your ballot, that you've mailed it, that it's on the way, that it's been delivered. And here, one of my friends compared it to writing a letter to Santa. You just hope and pray that it gets there and you have no way of knowing if it reached. Um, and that's kind of that's kind of what it seems like at this point. So we have been training more than 65 volunteers for observation shifts because sadly we have to be present and ensure that the count is accurate because this is not an institution that we can just trust to, to manage this accurately on autopilot. That's interesting. But Zoran, you've been through this whole campaign and as I said, it must be nerve-wracking and you agreed. How do activists avoid burnout? Because I am sure you're probably pretty burned out by now. Yeah, I'm very burned out right now. Um, I think you just have to take time when you're offered the opportunity. It's it's easier actually when you're working in the world of electoral politics because there's a natural end date and a start date to things. And so, you know, once the election is concluded, there's there's a natural opportunity to take some time to recuperate and, and take a break. It's harder for organizers and activists who are focused on issues that don't have such a natural timeline because then the break is up to you. You have to decide when to step away and there will always be more to do. And, you know, it's it's tough. I, I, I feel kind of on, on two different ends. You know, I, on one end, I feel like we have to ensure that people don't burn out. And on the other end, I sometimes feel like uh, the idea of self-care has been glamorized to a point where people think that, that watching, you know, watching Netflix is, is helping the revolution because they're taking care of themselves. And so it's it's tough to balance these two things. Um, but but yes, no, I absolutely agree. It's It's very easy to get burned out doing this work. 
So let's talk about issues. You are a democratic socialist. And as a progressive, I when I see people like you running um, in elections, it really makes me happy because we are expanding political sphere, political process. We are seeing more young people, a diverse group of young people coming in. But when you were on the campaign trail, did that title scare any future constituents? Because I have seen people push back on it so much, unfortunately. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I I, I really don't think it had that much of a negative impact um, on our race. Frankly, most people, when I would talk to them, did not ask me exactly what my political ideology was. They asked me, what were the issues that I cared about? What were the policies that I wanted to pass? And... All of those things that I would say were very much in line with democratic socialism. And it made me really think about that sometimes our major issue is that we have a branding problem as democratic socialists, because the issues themselves, the the ideology itself and the cause that we are fighting for, it is a popular one. And when you tell people that you're a democratic socialist, especially consultants, they'll tell you, oh, you've lost the election right there. You know, that that people won't want to engage with you. And I, I, I really didn't find that to be the case in this you know, was I knocking on every door, opening every conversation with the fact that I was a democratic socialist? No, I was not. Um, but I think that what we try and do is have conversations that, that make people expand their political imagination. And I think that over the course of this election, being a democratic socialist helped far more than it hurt. Is it because of COVID-19 and what's going on with healthcare and people are losing jobs? Well, I think that Frankly, this pandemic has pushed people to think about society in a more expansive way than they had prior. But frankly, when we began this campaign, it was October 18th, you know, at least four months, four or five months prior to the pandemic, or at least the shutdown. And in that time, people were still receptive to a conversation about universal rent control. People were still receptive in a conversation about ending cash bail. Now, these goals in and of themselves are not explicitly democratic socialists. They're not born solely out of this movement, but they speak to a scale of response that matches the scale of the crisis. Because, you know, here in Astoria and in New York City, we have had housing crisis, you know, policing crisis. These things have existed prior to the pandemic. And we've needed a large scale response to these things that was not market determined. And people were receptive to that. And then since the pandemic, I think their receptiveness has increased because it's not just the pandemic, actually, but also with, with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter protests, there's been a more critical thinking among a lot of people in our neighborhood about what is this status quo that we have right now and who does it serve and who does it leave behind? So let's talk about BLM. Um, we've seen that amidst the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and the list goes on, by the way, there, there are countless murders that have occurred before um, or after at the hands of police. There has been rise in discussions about defunding the police, um, even abolishing the police and abolishing the prison industrial complex. And I know these are extremely complicated topics, so we can't really delve into each one. But let's focus on police. Where do you stand on issues regarding the role of police in our society? I think we absolutely need to defund the police. I think that, you know, the police have a stated budget of close to $6 billion. And I say stated because they have a whole, you know, 
additional set of revenue and funding that comes from outside of the city budget comes from uh, the federal government as well as private institutions. And so we don't actually know what the overall budget of the NYPD is. But from the city's side, it's almost $6 billion. And it is just ridiculous that we have that large of a police budget. And it speaks to the fact that we have invested time and time again, whether there is crime is in, is at high levels or low levels, the consistency is that the city always believes that policing is the answer. And I think it's time to break the stranglehold of that political narrative because police in and of themselves, and actually, let me even rephrase that, police do not create safety. For, for many, many people across this city and this state, police actually create and amplify violence. And it is very important to speak about that reality that many people have because it pushes up against the conventional understanding of police who are seen to be people who come to resolve violence. But, I mean, you, you just look at the history of the NYPD and you see that we have invested in a system that functions in many ways to punish poor black and brown people across this city and across the state, and frankly, across this country. And there are so many responsibilities we have given to police that frankly should have nothing to do with their departments. You know, if a homeless person is on a train, they do not need a stranger with a gun to come and resolve that situation. If, you know, if somebody is jaywalking, if somebody is surviving, you know, going through domestic violence, if there are so many different, different situations that would be far better handled by people trained to deal with those specific situations as opposed to an individual with a gun who has received quite a limited amount of training in general, but also with regards to these kinds of situations. Because what ends up happening is that when we do this, these situations are escalated and we find so many people who are having a mental breakdown or people who are just trying to sleep on the train or you know, people who are just suffering through something in their lives. And instead of receiving a helping hand, they were tased, they were shot, they were killed. And then we ask ourselves, why does this keep happening? I mean, just see since the time that the resurgence of the BLM protests, how many more people have been killed by the police just in this time? And you would think that it would be less because the police would be, you know, maybe a little more circumspect about the use of force. But it's the fact that it continues speaks to these killings as being a part and parcel of policing, not an exception to it. And when you talk about this, Oran, I'm assuming you're talking about the systemic racism and systemic problems that exist because whoever operates within those systems behave a certain way, right? So sometimes people conflate this notion, those who think that we should not defund the police, they think that if somebody says, let's defund the police, they are anti-police. That's not true in terms of being anti-individuals. We are talking about the system itself, right? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that, that, and that's why I don't think it's worth having a discussion of whether there are, you know, oh, there are good police officers and bad police officers. The system exactly. itself is corrupted. And you can have as many well-intentioned people in a corrupt system, and eventually the system will corrupt them too. What I have noticed, and correct me if I'm wrong, that police function is different in different neighborhoods. It's different within different socioeconomic um, groups. So, for instance, police in an upper middle class, upper class neighborhood, predominantly white neighborhood, 
acts very differently. And that's why, unfortunately, people living in those neighborhoods cannot understand police brutality. They don't understand what police is capable of doing. How do we bridge that gap? How do we create this understanding, a more, I would say, um, broadened our holistic understanding of what's happening in poor neighborhoods and what's happening to minority groups uh, within that realm? I would say that, you know, there, there are many texts that people can read to get a better understanding of what's going on. You know, one that I remember is uh, Chris Hayes wrote a book called A Colony in a Nation that mm. spoke to the ways in which, you know, the police serve different functions in different places. And, you know, the the idea of neighborhoods that are majority minority, especially neighborhoods that are majority black, where the police serve as an occupying force versus in the nation, you know. Where it's, where it's a very different purpose. And I think that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez spoke about um, wanting a world where, you know, thinking about where is this world where the police do not serve this purpose? What, is, what, is a, what does a world look like without police violence and without constant surveillance? And mm. she talked about the suburbs. And I think that that's a very useful way of discussing this, that if you look at the wealthiest and the whitest parts of this country, and you look at these neighborhoods, it's not that they are neighborhoods where crime does not occur. It's not that they are neighborhoods where people do not create harm or make mistakes. It's that they are neighborhoods that treat those actions with very different sets of solutions. You know, in, in, a, in a poor black neighborhood, if you are caught with marijuana, we could be talking about going to jail. In a rich white suburb, you know, we could be talking about community service. And I think that these different sets of responses speak to the different sets of empathy that exist within them. And it speaks to the fact that one is invested in the continued survival and success of an individual, and the other is invested in the idea of making an example out of them. That's such a good point. And I am reading this book by the co-founder of um, Black Lives Matter movement, Patrice Colors Khan. Her book is called When They Call You a Terrorist. And honestly, it's it's an eye-opener. And as I'm reading that book, there are so many things that I'm discovering that I would not have discovered otherwise. And I've lived in this country for over a decade. So it's, as you said, it's important to create that self-awareness through reading and having conversations with people who are aware of these situations. Housing is a huge part of your campaign and New York is notorious for insanely high cost of living, right? Why do you think we have a housing crisis? And you've talked about pro-land, pro-corporation policies that have persisted. How do you intend to change that? Yeah, I think that you know, we have extremely high pricing of housing and apartments here in New York because we've had, you know, decades of legislation and political decisions that have allowed for corporate landlords and speculative investment to run amok across the city. You know, I live in Astoria, which in the last five years has had 7,500 new units come up, which is the second mm -hmm. highest in all of Queens in the last five years. And these new units have not eased the crisis of affordability. They've, in fact, um, increased it. And I think that that speaks to the fact that development does not assist the cost of living if it is market rate development. You know, 
housing is does not fit the typical curves of supply and demand because housing is not just a good that people need in order to live in it is also an investment tool it is also something right. that people can buy housing and keep it empty with the idea of simply extracting profit from it at a later date you look at how many mm-hmm. luxury apartments across the city are sitting vacant right now and it speaks to the fact that the intention of buying those is not to fill them it's to it's it's basically to use it as a bank account and and to have it be mm. a piece of investment i think that the way that we would change this is to do as much as we can to separate housing from the market to decommodify housing because we should not have people's ability to live in a home be dictated by how much money they have in their pocket so much of our crisis today is because we have invested in the market as as if it's some kind of neutral arbiter of justice when when we know that that is not the case what we need to do is we need to build far more housing that is not market rate but is rather social housing that is housing that can house those who the market has not accommodated we need hmm. to you know take away the billions of dollars in developer tax breaks that we give out every year we need to tax um secondary properties within new york city that are worth more than 5 million dollars which sounds very you know very non-controversial but it is it is quite controversial <laughs> i can tell you within real estate circles we need to put a tax on homes that are bought and sold within the same year we need to we need to take all sorts of actions short and long term to ensure that housing is a right one that every single new yorker has not simply access to but actually has so what i'm understanding is that you'll try to curtail housing used as an investment is that correct yes i think that what we hmm. need to do is we need to separate housing from the way it's from the way in which it's been used as an investment tool um mm. we need to do everything that we can to ensure that people are not being priced out of their neighborhoods and one way that we do that is we ensure that you know that we tie the development of housing units to people who will actually live in those units we do not need mm. to be continually building more and more properties that are luxury developments that only serve as in many ways offshore accounts for wealthy people across the world Zoran so let's pivot a little i recently discovered that your mom is mira nair she is a great filmmaker i am a big fan of hers and your dad is an academic he's an author i am just curious what were conversations like growing up at the dinner table yeah i mean i think that you know oftentimes people may think that it was completely that that my childhood might have been something entirely you know fantastical um but i think a lot of it was 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 not too different in in the sense of what we would discuss i think that um the influences of my parents work would come through in the in the conversations that we would have for sure um but i think that there was there was a mixture of that which is you know any that that which is of concern of any of any young kid um and then mixed in together with what my parents would be doing so for example you know i would say the influences you could feel them in terms of how i was brought up with regards the way that i would regard the arts or the the importance that i would place on social justice these are things that have been a big part of both of my parents work and has been something that they have that they have passed on to me and and have been made sure to pass on to me just by instilling certain values into me as a as a young kid you're a storyteller and uh, you're a musician as well people may not know that you're a rapper um let's talk about that side of your personality and um you created music for a film called queen of cartway 
you curated music you were music supervisor for it how was that experience like i mean it was a fantastic experience and i think it was a really formative experience for me um i had been making music but more kind of as as something that would give me joy as opposed to putting it out into the world more something that was for personal enjoyment and, and that of my friends um but then when i worked on queen of katwe which is a film that my mother directed it became something that i started to share with more people and um i not only was one of the two music supervisors on the film but also my brother and i made music for the film as well as outside of the film and you know i think that it was it was a very interesting experience because what i'm so proud of is that we made a soundtrack for this film that was actually reflective of the music that we listened to in kampala and not reflective mm. of what a studio executive would think that people in Uganda would be listening to. Okay for listeners, let's play a little bit of your song. Bring the flavor to the fish, bring the flavor to the rice. Who's the number one spice? Who's the number one spice? Bring the flavor to the fish, bring the flavor to the rice. Who's the number one spice? Oya gala mere, oya gala nice. Okay so go joke market with good price. The number one spice. Who's the number one spice? Ngata mula sakete munyonze nendeta. Oh my god, I love it. And I draw that distinction because throughout the course of the film, you know, I would be getting I would be sent songs that would be suggestions from the studio as to things that, you know, maybe we should include or um things that might be fitting and and these would be things like you know a a South African circumcision ceremony song you know <laughs> and and, and <laughs> things that basically fit into this kind of idea of Africa as a place of tribes and traditions and where music is all tied to these things and no understanding of the places it actually is and the fact that Africa is not a single place but it is um it is a continent with with more than 55 countries and um and each one has a distinct musical history and that's what was so exciting to me is you can watch that film and you can truly feel like you're turning on the radio at different points in time in Kampala as opposed to you know you watch a studio film that is set anywhere in Africa and it has music that has very little relation to place your family was forced to leave Uganda right due to being discriminated against in 1972 my family was expelled In 1972 Idi Amin the then president of Uganda expelled all South Asians um all Ugandans of South Asian origin and my family was expelled they became refugees in London and then Amin was overthrown in 79 and my father returned immediately and my family returned soon after him I was actually born and raised in Kampala post Amin so the, the expulsion happened in 72 and then you know since then it's it's been a, um a different set of governments and headed by the now president Yari Museveni who's been in power since 1986. And so I was born and raised in Kampala in 1991 I was born and raised there for, you know for the large part probably until 96 I'd be going back every year. Um so I have never faced you know I have never had to leave the country because of discrimination. I think that it is it is still my home it is one that I go to you know every year every two years it is one that I have lived in studied in worked in and um it'll always be always be a place that that I really do consider my home. I think that the the history of the Indian community in Uganda is an interesting one because there's no doubt that you know 
the expulsion was one that impacted every single Ugandan of South Asian origin, um, regardless of their personal actions or beliefs or politics. And, you know, my father would often talk about it didn't matter if you were a Marxist or you were a businessman, every Indian was getting expelled. And I think it also, there's a lot of work that has to be done in terms of understanding why that expulsion occurred, why it was so popular, and what the situation is now. Because, you know, I think that there's a lot of responsibility that has to be placed at the foot of Idi Amin um, with regards to expelling an entire group of people um, and and really taking taking an option that, you know, this was one that would be broadly popular, but it was also just making a scapegoat out of an entire community. And then we also have to talk about the fact that, you know, our history as Indian Ugandans is, there is a long history of basically living an entirely different life within Kampala, within Uganda, a segregated one. And the worries are that for many of the Indians that have come back to Uganda, the vast majority of them are not actually ones who were here prior to 1972. These are new immigrants to the country. And the fears are that the same mistakes which allowed for such a decision to be popular are being made again and again. And that I frankly do worry that, you know, there may come a time again where a president or um, a political leader might deem it politically expedient to make such an expulsion occur again. Um, because the same the same roots still exist. But do you think that migration before 1972 was more part of colonialism, British colonialism, which which was happening in India, and many Indians migrated to Uganda and other places in positions of power, and because of that, there was resentment within local population against Indians, and now the situation may be different because they are not going back in the same capacity, maybe? Well, I think the initial migration is one that is very much tied to colonialism because it's a migration where, you know, the British brought many, many Indians to build the railways in East Africa. And exactly. the British brought Indians across many of their colonies across the world, um, whether we're talking about South Africa or Madagascar or, you know, the West Indies. And it's, it, it is in many ways, as you say, which is that, there was kind of like a triangle of a social system where the British mm -hmm. were on the top and the Indians were placed in the middle as a buffer between the British and um, and the Black Ugandan population. And I think that it so much of you know it is a classic it is a classic uh, set of kind of operations from a colonial power to create a buffer population between themselves and a local population right. and. You know, when when then when departing to leave any kind of the resentment basically be dealt with between uh, between the buffer and between the local population. I think that, you know, my father has has written a whole book about the, the legacies of, of colonial infrastructure and government and the ways in which that it impacted the creation of of the political state following independence and how much has been retained. And I think that there there is a large part, you know, of explaining this, the relationship through that through that the understanding of the colonial state and the way it was set up. I think also that at, at this point, we do have to take, there does have to be a larger reckoning, though. You know, we talk about BLM. There's a lot of anti-blackness within our Indian communities, whether it's an Indian oh, community absolutely. in Kampala or it's an Indian community across the world. It's both anti-blackness in terms of being prejudiced and racist towards black people, as well as towards people who have darker complexions within our own communities. And I think that that also plays out in the ways in which 
we interact and relate to black people. Colorism is a huge issue in India and Pakistan. I grew up with it. And I think everybody living in those countries is pretty much aware of how that plays out. But unfortunately, we don't realize that colorism also affects how we view the black community as migrant populations when we come from, say, India and Pakistan to the United States and many other countries. This is not like specific to India and Pakistan. We bring those inherent biases which we don't realize. And, and I think it's important to have these conversations, although some may argue that having a conversation about colorism right now may take away from conversation that we are having um, around BLM. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think we can have parallel conversations? I think we can. I mean, I think that there are conversations that we have that are outward facing and conversations that we have that are inward facing. I think that there's a lot of these things that are tied together intricately. You know, I think that a lot of colorism is built and based around a fear and a hatred of black people and uh, and a terror that, you know, one might be mistaken for being black because of the color of our skin and what that and what that represents in different places. I think that we should ensure that the larger conversation is focused on Black Lives Matter. And I think that that also speaks to, you know, a lot of times what happens is that black Americans will come up with a slogan or a hashtag or, you know, a mantra about about a specific issue and then it catches fire and then people try and take that same structure of that slogan or mantra or whatever it may be and adapt it to something. And I think that that's, you know, we should allow these things to live on their own and then create our own calls to action. So for example, from Black Lives Matter, people start to use, you know, Migrant Lives Matter or This Lives Matter. And I think that it kind of speaks to how often Black issues and Black causes get co-opted, even in the, with the best intentions, um, and that we should create a different set of language for these different kind of issues. And as you pointed out, when we talk about colorism, it has to be introspective work. It has to, as you said, we have to look as to how we've been complicit in perpetuating or being silent about um, anti-Black racism. It's not about, you know, being victims within that space, right? Yeah, I think that, that that's what's very important to do in this moment is that a lot of times the the term people of color, it allows us to kind of erase any of the complicity that we have as a community of color towards um, the, you know, and the, the sustenance of anti-black and, and white supremacist rhetoric and action. And I think this is a moment in which we have to be very introspective and we have to ask ourselves how is it that we have aided and abetted the rise of this movement? And how is it that we have sustained it? And what is it that we can do? Because I'm frankly not that interested in, in conversations about guilt and about how people should feel. I'm far more interested in people actually taking action on these issues. Um, and I think that there's so much that we can do as Desis with regards to ensuring that this is a country where Black lives matter. I think as Desis, we can start with the kind of language that we use, our, our local vernacular, how, how do we um, engage in anti-Black racism without even realizing it? Yeah, I think that there's definitely issues of language. I think that there's also, you know, I think it's, it's um, how do I put it? Pa Paul Mooney has a famous quote, which, which to paraphrase it basically says, Everyone, everybody wants to be Black, but nobody wants to be Black. And I think that you can see that with just the way in which black culture is consumed in India and, you know, the kind of obsession with it. And you can even just look at 
you know, the impact that, that hip hop has had in India and, and the way in which, you know, how, how much of a movement it has spawned within India. And then you look at how people want to, you know, take the fashion, take the words, take the ideas, take the, take the music and not take anything else. And I think that, yes, we need to change the language that we use, but I think we also need to ask ourselves, you know, how do we stand in solidarity? And in a context, you know, it might seem in India, you know, what is it that we can be doing? One might ask, like, what, what is it that we can do in India when Black Lives Matter protest is, is in the United States? I think that's a situation where you figure out, you know, what are the linkages between anti-blackness over there and anti-blackness over here? And, and, and you know, you think about the ways in which African students have been treated in India. You think about the ways in which darker-skinned Indians have been treated. You think about just so many different aspects of really a racism, and, and there are so many opportunities to combat that. Okay, let's pivot a little. I was looking at your merch. It's called Roti and Roses, and I was really impressed with the name. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, so basically the idea came from a popular 19th century labor chant from Massachusetts, which was a chant for bread and roses, which is where you know these, these labor workers were, were striking and they were chanting that this is what they were fighting for. They were fighting for bread, they were fighting for roses, that which they could sustain themselves um, to survive and that which they could use to thrive. And I love that phrase and I love that idea. And, you know, many socialists, we use this idea of, 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 of moving beyond survival and moving into something, a world where we can thrive. And I adapted Bread and Roses to Roti and Roses because this campaign is also about spotlighting, you know, we're, we're fighting a universal cause. And we also want to take this opportunity to spotlight the certain communities that have been especially left behind on the basis of who they are. And, you know, the South Asian community in New York City, they're almost, they're more than 400,000 South Asians. There's never been a South Asian elected representative at any level in New York City, right? There are more than a million Muslims in New York City. There's only ever been one Muslim to ever serve in the New York State Assembly. And so these different ways in which specific communities have been left behind I wanted to adapt that into Roti and Roses to, to make it clear that, you know, for certain communities, there's also a double-edged layer of oppression where you are not only oppressed by the nature of your class, you're also oppressed by the nature of, of your race and your ethnic background. And um, this was kind of a fun way to just kind of play with that idea and, and introduce it into people's consciousness. But Zoran, when it comes to political engagement of uh, South Asian community, do you think it has something to do with how most immigrant populations um, are trained to think because most of the time we we think that, you know, we just need to put our head down and just work nine to five, not worry about anything, not engage ourselves in anything that's controversial. That is changing now. We've seen a huge change. But I think we ought to take some responsibility for lack of commitment or engagement on our part as well. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of room for us to get more engaged. And, and But I think that, frankly, you know, that there are many South Asian Americans, many Asian Americans who have been doing this work. And I think that what we need to do is shine a light on them and, and follow their example. You know, I think that for a long time, you know, and I think it's part of the immigrant experience, which is that, you know, what people do not come to this country with the interest of bettering this country or reckoning with the crises of this country. They come to this country for a better life for themselves and for their family. And I think that as a result of that, the immediate focus is to, you know, build that up. And I think that this is also part of being, you know, the second generation, third generation, fourth generation of our communities 
is that we understand ourselves as part of this country and all the privileges that come with that also come with responsibilities. And I think that there's a growing understanding that these crises that are here, we have a responsibility to both respond to them and to work to resolve them. That's true. So in the end, I ask all my guests this question. If you were to describe America, how would you do that? Wow, I have... <laughs> I'm a bit stumped. I don't know how I describe this country. Um, I think that, you know, oftentimes people describe this country in the terms of exceptionalism. And I think they do the same thing with the city that I love very much, New York. And I think that it's important to think of ourselves in the larger scheme of things and think of this country in the context of the world. And I think that I would describe America as a place that is ravaged by many a crisis, but that has a real opportunity and a real chance um, to chart a different course. And I think that that course will not be charted by itself. It has to be charted by those who are able to see the world for what it is and also have the imagination for the world as it could be. And I think that we need to listen to those people, work with those people and organize with them. And that's something that I plan to do. Thank you, Zohran. And if people were to look for information about your campaign, about your policies, where can they go? They can go to zohranforassembly.com, uh, which is Z-O-H-R-A-N-F-O-R-A-S-S-E-M-B-L-Y.com. And they can also find me on social media at Zohran K. Mamdani on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you so much. This was great. And best of luck with, with the vote count. Thank you so, so much. I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation with Zohran. And I hope you are liking season seven. If you want to give us feedback, you can write to us at info at immigrantlypod.com. And don't forget to visit our website, immigrantlypod.com and consider donating. It helps us grow and it goes a long way. Do come back next week when I have another interesting guest for you guys. Take care and stay safe and distant. Thank you.